Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. You're relaxed, dozing off in the warmth. Well, this morning I've uh, bring you a message from Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15 is only five verses. And I thought when I was to prepare for it that it shouldn't be a big deal, you know, it's only five verses. But it's amazing just how much, uh, how much meat is in there and how challenging it is and certainly has been for me in, in preparing for it. As we uh, be going through a series talking about prayer and, uh, you know, how we can pray and um, we've been looking at the first week, I think Argy brought us a message on adoration, you know, that God deserves our praise and our worship. And um, then, uh, who was it next? Arlen brought us a message on confession. That's right. The place of confession in our prayer. And last week, Ronnie talked about thanksgiving. Vitally important. And this morning, we're going to talk about supplication or how we pray to God. Before we do that, let's just uh, pray together. Lord, we, we're thankful that you didn't leave us wondering about you or the path that you provided to free us from the weight and penalty of sin. Uh, we thank you that you left us with your Holy Bible that answers the many questions we may have about you and who you are and how we can please you. So, Lord, as we come to look at your word again this morning, please work in us to be honest with ourselves when applying scripture to our lives so that we may grow in grace by your Holy Spirit. Lord, bless our time in your word this morning, we pray. Amen. So if you'd like to take your Bibles and head to Psalm 15, and uh, we'll just read that. Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbour, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a a reprobate is despised, but who honours those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. A dictionary definition of this word supplication goes along the line, this is a secular definition, an action of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. And it's used a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, I just dragged up um, one, I looked up one, Exodus 8.28, just to give you some idea of how it's used. Um, Pharaoh said to Moses, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. 
only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh. I recently came across a survey conducted by a Christian retail company in the US about the sorts of things people pray for and what they believe about prayer. Most, of them, most people believe in prayer and they believe that God answers prayer. Uh, amongst adults, about one in four say that God answers all prayers. Uh, 37% say that God answers some of them. And only 3% of those think that God doesn't answer any of them. 74% pray for their own needs and difficulties. 21% pray for winning the lottery. 15% pray that no one will find out about the hidden sin in their life. Other things being prayed for was to find a good parking spot at church not to get caught speeding, probably on the way to church, success in something they know wouldn't please God, or for someone else to fail, or to get fired, or for a relationship to end. In my own experience, many church prayer requests specialise in people with health issues, often to the exclusion of most anything else. Of course, it's not wrong to pray for healing, as the Lord wills, but there is so much more we can be praying for, for each other and for ourselves. Uh, Praying the Psalms gives us great insight into David and the things that were on his heart, the things that were important to him, the things that he would bring before his father. This prayer of David is both asked and answered by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the benefit of all who will sing his songs or read his psalms in future generations. Now, as I bring this message, I'm going to be using the term man a lot, and it's really stuck out because there's a lot of man involved here. But I want you women to know that you can just transpose man for woman, and just as this um, passage applies equally to all of us. In Psalm 15, David begins with a very imposing question. He asks, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? So this is a very important question. Who is worthy to come before the king? Now these two questions are really one and the same question, just asked in different ways. It's a Hebrew parallelism where the second line is a restatement of the first or designed to add context to the first. In David's day, the tent was referred to as the tent that David had prepared for the Ark of the Covenant when he moved it to Jerusalem. And God's holy hill refers to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But this very pertinent question, who may access God in a way to be well received by the king, Implies, implied in, the, in this question is that not everyone can. So David is asking God or praying to God as to how he can approach God in a worthy manner, a manner that is pleasing to him. 
So it's worth mentioning at this juncture that this passage is not talking about regeneration, but sanctification. This is not a path to salvation, but things done resulting from salvation. Also, this is not a comprehensive list of all the things God requires of us. The Ten Commandments, for instance, also apply, as do many other commands, particularly in the New Testament. Often when we pray, we come before God to make our request to him without first considering how we should prepare ourselves to meet with him. If we were given the opportunity to meet with royalty, we would go to some effort to find out exactly how to present ourselves to the royal. You know, what to wear, what to say or not say, uh, whether to bow and how. There are very strict protocols around anyone who has an audience with the sovereign. But our sovereign God is not looking for this type of formality per se, but for purity in our hearts. He's looking at our inward thoughts and motives. And there are prerequisites that he requires of us to come into his presence. So while we have been received by grace and our relationship with the Father is more intimate than formal, it still matters to God how we conduct ourselves and how we live our lives. We need to be prepared to meet with him on his terms. So, who may be a guest of the Lord and live in his house with his welcome? That's the question. And the question is so important that David asked and answered it again nine psalms later in Psalm 24, where David repeats this question when he says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? So David gives us a four-part answer in the next four verses. The first part is in verse 2. The man who can come into the presence of the Father is a man who walks, works and speaks. He walks with integrity. He works righteousness and he speaks truth in his heart. This man that God accepts him into his presence is a man of personal godliness or integrity. He is a man who pursues holiness and whose life is right before God. The idea of integrity encompasses things like honesty, sincerity and singleness of purpose. It can also mean blamelessness or completeness or wholeness. In the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, David and Job were called people of integrity. And although Jesus didn't use the word integrity, he also called for purity of heart, singleness of purpose and purity of motive. So, is your life a life of integrity? Is your life the same on weekdays as it is on Sunday? Do you look like a Christian on Sundays but go on to look indistinguishable from the world on other days of the week? Do you publicly live for Christ but privately have hidden sin? Do you use language at work that you would never use at church?
The opposite of living a blameless life or a life of integrity is to have that inward division where you say, maybe I'm a Christian, but I don't really know, and in the end I'm just looking out for my own interests. A good example of this was Judas. Judas claimed to be a follower of Christ, but he didn't have integrity or loyalty, nor was he blameless. He followed God while it suited him. He followed God to the point where it infringed on other things more important to him. He eventually betrayed Jesus for money, money being his God. The money ended up being more important than Christ. And for this money, he was willing to sacrifice his relationship with Christ, the other disciples, and ending up an enemy of God himself. So you'll no doubt realise that we have an integrity crisis in our culture. We read every day about some scandal or other involving particularly public figures where their secret sins have been exposed. Some years ago now, and I remember it well, over 400 pastors were found on the Ashley Madison list of users after that site got hacked. And for those of you who may not know, Ashley Madison is a website which specialises in encouraging and facilitating adulterous relationships and affairs. There was much damage done to God's people and much weeping, with many pastors fronting up to their churches with their resignations. So yes, we have an integrity crisis, even in the church. We spend much time in the world, and a lot of that rubs off on us, but it shouldn't. And that's why we need to die to ourselves daily. David tells us to walk with integrity. Follow your Lord and Saviour and do so with loyalty. Say, this is who I am, no matter what the circumstances. This man who walks with integrity is above blame before the eyes of his fellow man. So as we walk with integrity, the verse goes on to talk to us about the work that is required of us. And this is the work of righteousness. Now this is really gruelling work. This is hard, hard work, requiring much effort and often many tears given by the God's grace. We must be a person who is wholly righteous, who pursues holiness and whose life is right before God. Our lives are being continually conformed to God's holiness and to the standards we learn from God's word. Now, positionally, we are righteous before God because of Christ. But as we are still afflicted uh, by sin, so we are hence called to pursue holiness. Now, this is a massive ongoing battle for us. The process of sanctification is where we continue to grow in holiness by our obedience to God's command and through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But there's no let go and let God here. The Holy Spirit empowers us, but we must do our part, our work. We are to continually battle, continually to battle the flesh and to press on to the upward call of God and to persevere to the end. Our end goal here is to be like Christ himself, to have the same character as him, to walk like he walked and talk like he talked and to be conformed to his likeness. 
Our walking and our working are only possible because our lives are continually being transformed by God's grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? It's that person being pictured in verse 2 who walks, works and speaks. It speaks of this person's habitual actions and his pattern for life. This is a man who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. This person has a heart commitment to the truth, the truth being the word of God, the truth of God's character. Now there is only one truth, you know, unlike what we've led to believe. And the truth is not what Twitter or Facebook or the media says is true. The truth is not different for different people. The truth is God's truth and it's absolute truth. So this person speaks God's truth from his heart. He does not believe one thing and say another. He does not say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. There is no duplicity and no hypocrisy with him. He is not a man-pleaser, one who tickles the ears of the listener. He doesn't just say what is acceptable to his peers but stands firmly on God's truth, come what may. Verse 2 combines an inner attitude in the heart with an outward walk, showing us that both are important to be blameless, to be righteous and to be speaking truth. So if you're a hypocrite today, you need to know that it cannot last. Your hypocrisy, that difference between what's on the inside and what's on the outside, is paper thin. And as you continue down that dangerous path, it will wear and eventually burst. So if this area of your life is a problem for you, then make this your supplication before the Lord. Pray that you would be that man or woman of integrity, that undivided person, that whole person, a person seeking after righteousness and truth. And also pray the same for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 3 goes on to the things that are not true of that man. These godly characteristics are both negative as well as positive. So not only does the person speak truth from his heart, but he does not slander with his tongue. Ephesians 4.29, Paul reminds us that we should not let any unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So slander refers to someone walking around seeking negative tidbits of gossip to pass on to someone else. Such people behave just like spies or conspirators, trafficking trafficking in information that tears someone else down. Proverbs has a lot to say about this kind of man, calling him a worthless man who digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. He spreads strife and he separates intimate friends, Proverbs 16.27. James 3.8 reminds us that no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless 
evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, men who have been made in the likeness of God. So if you're honest with yourself, as I have to be, this has been true of me, and I'm sure it's been true of you, that we have spoken in an unwholesome way. There are times when we speak that is displeasing to the Lord, as it doesn't build up but tears down. We have been known to speak with abandon, inaccuracies and with insensitivity. And we have said things that are harmful and not godly to others. If we are to abide in God's holy tent and upon God's holy hill, these things must be removed from us. Our personal relationships must be holy. More damage has been done to the church in this work by, and it's work, sorry, by gossip, criticism, slander, than by any other single sin. So, don't do it. Bite your tongue before you criticise another Christian. Think carefully of the repercussions. Now Jesus, of course, is a model for keeping his tongue in perfect submission to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Like a sheep before the shearers, is mute, so he opened not his mouth, Isaiah says. And when Jesus first preached in his hometown of Nazareth, the crowds gathered and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, Luke 14.22. Jesus is gentle and lowly with his words. So we need to come before the Lord, and this should be our supplication, in which we confess how our tongue has been used in an unwholesome way and we should be asking forgiveness of God. In the middle of verse 3, David says that a person does no evil to his neighbour or takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, our neighbour here is not the guy next door. It is basically anyone we come into contact with. We must never do something evil against them. Evil, of course, is sin. A godly man doesn't cause harm to his neighbours and friends by anything he says or does or even fails to do. A godly man is good and honest and honourable to neighbours and friends. Do you have a tendency to want to get back at someone who does some wrong to you to get revenge Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5.44 that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A godly man would also be slow to believe a negative story about a friend. He would need to have conclusive evidence before this godly man would believe that a report may be true rather than to cause harm. This man empathises in their pain. He cares for them. His words are kind and true. What this man says is the same of who this man is. Is there someone that you have wronged or who you need to ask forgiveness from? Do you need to confess the sin to God? Maybe you could make this your supplication that all our interactions with people be in love and for their good, to the glory of God. 
Verse 4, moving right along. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honours those who fear the Lord. Now, at first glance, this could be somewhat confusing, but this is talking about really our role models. We should not hold up the godless and immoral people as our role models. Instead, we need to honour those who fear the Lord. We shouldn't be taking pleasure in evil. The way you treat others, as we have just learnt, has a direct impact on the way you worship God. But likewise, the way you view others also has an impact on your relationship with God. Even though God hates every sin, that doesn't mean that we should not have compassion, care and even evangelise those who are in sin. However, we should not follow them or hold them up in esteem as people who reject God should not be honoured by us. What you see in the church today is many of God's people looking exactly like the world by deriving every pleasure from worldly entertainment. You know, when you follow the world, you're going to just look like the unbelievers around you. The point here is not to be like a Pharisee by comparing ourselves to them as if we're somehow better. It's an allegiance thing. It's saying, this is where I stand, this is what I admire, this is who I love, and this is who I'm committed to. And that's what Psalm 15 is all about. It shows us that reprobates are not for your entertainment. They're not there for you to laugh at. They are not there for you to promote. They are to be despised, but prayed for. We are to despise their lifestyle, their life without God, their life independent of God, their life autonomous of God. We should not be envious of wrongdoers. We should instead honour those who fear the Lord. Honour should be given, esteem should be given to those who are truly pursuing holiness and godliness. So Psalm 1 explains it well. He says, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. So have you been guilty of, of esteeming those in the world who despise God and reject him? Do you contribute money to them? Do you support them in their depravity? Do you allow yourself to be entertained by those who have no respect for God and who refuse to recognise him. Maybe this can be your supplication to despise people who promote wickedness and to honour those who love and serve God so that you can come into God's presence, into his tent, into his holy hill with a pure heart. Now if you look with me at the last sentence of verse 4, it says he swears by his own hurt and does not change. In other words, the godly man keeps his word. If he enters into an agreement with someone and things change, it may be inconvenient or difficult for him to keep that agreement. But the godly man will keep his word regardless of what it might end up costing him. He will not look for a way out, 
that he will do what is right and fair, even if it means that he himself may experience a bad outcome. His honesty has more value than his material possessions. His character is more value to him than money. He does not renege from his word, nor change the rules for his advantage. A godly man is one whose word is his bond, who swears to his own hurt. And the context here is in his financial obligations. But it also applies to other areas, like when you say to someone, I'm going to pray for you. Do you? If you offer to serve in the church and something trivial comes up, do you hold on to your commitment that you've made? Are you a person of your word? Maybe this is a supplication that you can make to the Lord to be that man, that woman of your word, even if inconvenient to maintain it. Now Jesus is the ultimate example of this, of course. He kept his word when it came to the cross, despite the great cost to himself. So let us follow his example. Verse 5. So far we have our answers to the questions David posed. Uh, And they have involved walking with integrity, working righteousness, speaking the truth, controlling the tongue, the treatment of our neighbours and friends, our associations, and then our commitments. So finally, we look at the use of our financial resources. This too is a personal, is part of a personal holiness and demonstrates who we are and what we are. Verse 5 says, The person who may abide in God's tent and who may dwell on his holy hill does not put his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now in, in Israel, it wasn't altogether a ban on charging interest. It was more about the exploitation of a brother or the exploitation of the misfortune of a brother. In other words, the verse concerns greed eclipsing justice. The best Old Testament illustration of abuse um, verse 5 is talking about is Nehemiah 5 where all the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor amongst the exiles when all should have been helping one another. In the Mosaic Civil Code, one Jew was to help another Jew, like a brother helping another brother, and not to take advantage of someone when they're in a weak position or destitute. Now for foreigners and strangers, it was definitely approved to lend money at interest. But the idea here is that if we see someone in need, then we should show generosity uh, to give them help, maybe by allowing them to pay back their loan when they're able to and not exploiting them for personal, personal gain unreasonably. Psalm 15 reminds us that how we handle our money is important. According to biblical teaching, God's people are to put people before money and to put God before money. So, who can be in God's presence? And the answer is a person righteous in every way, a 
person who is perfectly holy, only he can live in the presence of God. So did you hear that answer? person who is righteous in every way, person who is perfectly holy, only he can live in the presence of God. Well, that answer is quite devastating for us, and it's devastating for all of us who are sinners, which is all of us, of course. No one can live in the presence of God. No one can maintain that standard. So if you had any semblance of man-made religion, this psalm is like a wrecking ball to that, and it breaks it down. If you had slipped for a minute into thinking that human effort could make you acceptable to God, that good works could end your salvation, I hope you'll join me in being overwhelmed at God's impossible, unattainable standard. You can't do Psalm 15 because you're not a Psalm 15 person. You're a Psalm 14 person. Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. No one. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is no one who does good, not even one. So in effect, Psalm 15 is a mighty war between mankind and God, between a sinful man and a holy God. God's holiness exposes our sinful condition. But wait. Then God. God loved us. God called us. God regenerated us to be his own. Jesus paid the debt of sin so that we could be made righteous before the Father. And we have received the Holy Spirit who has the power to transform our lives into the likeness of Christ. Christ has changed that wall into a gate. The prerequisite to worship is absolute holiness, it's righteousness, it's integrity, but God wants us to worship him and so he has made us a way. As we live for him in integrity, Jesus teaches us and makes us acceptable to God. Not because of our integrity but because of his and not because of our righteousness, but because of his. Finally, Psalm 15.5 ends by giving us this assurance in the last sentence. He who does these things will never be shaken. Not him who thinks about these things. Not him who desires these things. Not him who teaches these things but him who does these things. He is the one who will stand firm and confident in the faith. This stability of life is a blessing from God given to his obedient people. In Matthew 7.24 we read, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. God's promise is that the righteous person will not be shaken from his dwelling place in the divine presence of God. The righteous one will be a guest in the tent of God forever. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 1.3 We know that we cannot live this way all the time so our supplication must be for the Lord to have patience with us to give us the desire to live this way, to work within us for his good pleasure. Now we must make decisive steps in our own lives. We must work out what God has placed in us so that we can abide in his tent and dwell in his holy hill, wholly acceptable to him. One of the many things we can pray for, surely, is to be a Psalm 15 man or woman, this would be a worthy of supplication. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning and we thank you for the word of God that we have heard. And while it's very tough to be a Psalm 15 person in this present world, our supplication is that you will give us grace to walk blameless, to do the right thing, to be truthful in our heart and our speech, to be gracious in our talk and good to our neighbours, to hate evil and honour godly people. Help us to keep our word and not to oppress the poor, even as we dedicate ourselves to live according to your word. Lord, make us good representatives of your mercy and grace out in the world from whence we came. We thank you for the gospel story that qualifies us to live with you. We thank you that even as we strive to live according to this word, that we have the Holy Spirit, his presence working with us, abiding in us as we abide in you. Lord, enable us to walk this world until it is our time to come home to you. We ask for your grace and your blessing on our church. And as we depart, let your peace go with us. We give you the glory, the honour and the praise in Jesus' mighty name. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father and the sweet fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each and every one of us from now and forevermore. Amen.